0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. It's been about a month since Russia began its war on Ukraine. And it's hard to wrap your head around a crisis as big as this. Sure, yeah, there's this sort of obvious narrative of Putin's aggression on the world stage, but then there are all these other parts of the story that play into why the war's been so hard to stop. In a bit, we'll hear from Marie Yovanovitch, who was removed from her position as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine back in 2019 as part of a politics play from former President Donald Trump. But first, President Putin has always played the long game when it comes to keeping his money straight, which is why a few weeks ago, the U.S. had to target sanctions against specific elites and oligarchs beneath Putin on the Kremlin org chart. In 2014, during Russia's previous actions into Ukraine, NPR's Arun Roth spoke with the late political scientist Karen Dewisha about her book, Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia, to find out how did Putin and his cronies gain control of his country's
1: economy. Karen Dewisha, professor of political science at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, spent the last five years investigating how Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, came to control so much of that country's wealth. Her new book is Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia? Karen DeWesha, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So when you call Russia a kleptocracy, can you explain what you mean?
2: Sure. So what I mean is that Putin has created a system where he nationalizes the risk and privatizes the reward. So when we think about the Sochi Olympics, for example, it's well known that they cost about $50 billion, and most of those contracts were awarded as no-bid contracts to, to people close to him, and billions were made by them. Another example would be the collaboration of Putin's closest circle in the establishment and funding of Bank Russia, a bank that has emerged as one of Russia's top 10 banks that receives a lot of government state budgeting, but it's a private bank. So here you have a case where the money to fund comes from the state and the profit goes to friends of the current president.
1: And and the the roots of, of Putin's rise, as, as you describe it, it's, they go all the way back to the last days of the Soviet Union. Can you talk about what was happening then with the KGB and, and with Putin?
2: Right. So what happened was uh, the KGB and conservatives in the Communist Party got quite worried that Gorbachev, who is a, a reformist, might install a multi-party system as had emerged in Eastern Europe. And that would mean that they wouldn't get access to state funds, so they decided preemptively just to take them. <laughs> and then, uh, having done that and put the money, you know, buried the money deep, there was a coup attempting against Gorbachev, and he and Yeltsin banned the Communist Party. So the KGB suddenly knew the bank accounts for all of this money, but there was no oversight, so they just they just did what comes naturally.
1: And and what what you write about seems like it involves KGB, the former KGB, and Russian criminal activity. Are they they all connected?
2: Right. They They are connected. What we might expect in a Western country is that the ruling authorities would suppress the mafia, but it doesn't happen even in the United States. So there have been periods even in the United States where certain cities come under the influence more than others of mafia activity. But in Russia, what happened was that the central state came under the influence, significant influence, of mafia activity. And sometimes some groups were favored who were willing to enforce contracts, uh, run off-books operations, and take money out of the country. And so, you know, money was flooding out of Russia, both mafia money and KGB money.
1: So it, it seemed like this process, in, in a way the status quo, was working very well for Vladimir Putin and and his friends. Uh, but since what's happened in, uh, in the Ukraine, Russia's actions in, in Ukraine, the sanctions that have been imposed on, on Russia, doesn't that complicate the status quo? How do you see what's happening, these latest aggressions fitting in with Putin's overall economic strategy?
2: I don't think that there's any way that he could have predicted that there would be sanctions of the type that have been imposed. You know, it was a military exercise that he engaged in. He probably expected a military response. That hasn't happened. So when these sanctions came down, he was extremely surprised and has encouraged the people who've been sanctioned around him to take the case to court and to fight back in the legal arena. So we'll see if they, if they do pursue that. I think they certainly will in Europe.
1: And speaking of court, but before I let you go, I need to ask you, uh, this this book, your book was originally going to be published by Cambridge University Press in Britain. And uh, I understand they, they, they dropped it because they were concerned. I, I know Britain has different libel laws than we have here in, in, in the US.
2: Right. So uh, what happened in Britain is that their libel laws are such that only if it's proven in a British court as being true, can you say that a charge is true. <laughs> so the fact that you know, I've written a very academic book with thousands of footnotes, fulfilling more than the necessary academic standards. In Britain, uh, the book could be challenged in court, and friends of Putin have shown themselves willing to defend the regime by taking on lots of people in British
1: courts. And and not to put too fine a point on it, but these would be people with, with fairly deep pockets.
2: Yeah, yeah, in infinitely deep pockets, one imagines <laughs>
1: Karen Duesha's new book is Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia? Karen, thank you.
2: Yeah, my pleasure, Aaron.
0: When President Trump was attacking Marie Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, it's not that she didn't have anyone within the State Department defending her. Apparently, her boss, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, did up until a certain point. Yovanovich has a memoir out now called Lessons from the Edge, and she talked to NPR's Mary Louise Kelly about her time at the State Department and what it feels like to undergo a political ousting campaign.
3: It's a strange thing, amid all the urgent efforts to end the war in Ukraine, all the frantic diplomacy underway, to recall that the U.S. has no ambassador to Ukraine. The job's been filled in an acting capacity for three years now. That is because the last Senate-confirmed ambassador to Ukraine got a call from Washington spring of 2019 telling her, come home.
4: They were concerned about my security and I needed to come home right away.
3: Marie Ivanovich, testifying during impeachment proceedings about why she was called home. That summons came amidst a coordinated effort to smear the ambassador. Ivanovich told me when she asked the State Department to back her up, she was told to put out her own statement pledging loyalty to then President Trump.
4: And I thought, boy, if that's if that's what we've come to that I have to defend myself, I I just didn't see how I was going to be able to survive in the job. It was only
3: later that Yovanovitch learned the attacks on her were part of politics related to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. In her new memoir, Lessons from the Edge, Yovanovitch writes about those politics and that they were driven by Trump's lawyer, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani.
4: Giuliani wanted um, to find dirt in Ukraine that would implicate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son of corruption or anything else, kind of following the Russian uh, talking points that it wasn't Russia that had meddled in U.S. elections, it was Ukraine. And he was also hoping that there might be some dirt there in there on uh, Joe Biden.
3: I mean, it's been described as a, as a shadow foreign policy, that there were the official marching orders you were getting through normal mm-hmm. State Department channels, and then meanwhile there was this whole separate track being run by the president's then lawyer, right. Rudy Giuliani. Is that a fair way to put it?
4: I think that's a fair way to put it. Um, and, and the purpose of Giuliani's mission was to, you know, take down a political opponent for President Trump.
3: I think I fully grasped the extent... Of the pressure campaign to oust you. When I listen to um, this tape that I that I want to play now, this is audio from Lev Parnas, uh, an associate of Rudy Giuliani's who has since been convicted of campaign finance crimes. Audio from a dinner in 2018, and you mm-hmm. hear him telling Trump that you were badmouthing him, badmouthing the president. Get
2: rid of her. Hooray. He get her out tomorrow. I don't care. Get her out tomorrow. <laughs> Take her out.
3: So that's the then President of the United States saying, take her out, her meaning you. Um, What is that like, to hear that from the President of the United States?
4: Yeah, it it was really painful to hear that for the first time. Um, And obviously still painful. I don't understand how the President could have been manipulated like this by bad actors. Hmm. You know, this is part of that shadow foreign policy that you're talking about. Or, as Fiona Hill memorably put it, the um political errand uh, that Giuliani and others were being sent on.
3: You write at length uh, in this book about the decision to testify in the impeachment mm-hmm. hearings, um, the extent to which you prepared. Um, and I remember, I mean I remember the day that you testified. I was anchoring our live coverage that day. There was a moment when the chairman, Adam Schiff, alerted you as you're testifying live that President Trump was tweeting at you in real time, attacking you.
1: As we sit here testifying, the president is attacking you on Twitter. Um, And I'd like to give you a chance to respond. I'll read part of one of his tweets. Everywhere Marie Ivanovich went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go?
4: What went through your mind at that moment? I couldn't believe it. Um, you know, Trump always does unbelievable things, but, um, I certainly hadn't been expecting that, you know, it was just the range of emotions, but I knew that I couldn't sort of give in to anger or anything else. Even in the moment, I knew it reflected more on him than it reflected on me, but I also knew that I had to kind of, uh, get myself in hand, um, and sort of be as level headed as possible. I mean, my answer, I don't think, was fully coherent, uh, but um, I tried to get things back on track, and I think I managed in the end.
3: Well, and you write that, you know, while it was not something you appreciated in the moment, that later it became clear to you that Trump's tweeting at you had actually
4: kind of helped you out. How so? Well, that's what I believe. I don't know what the Republicans um, had planned uh, for that day in, in terms of questioning me, but I think there was such a strong reaction to the president's tweet. I mean, people felt it was out of line. And of course, it demonstrated that everything that I had been saying was true. (laughs) So if the Republicans had been planning on sort of um, being very aggressive with me, I think it really hurt that. And so they spent the rest of the day basically um, trying to indicate how irrelevant all of the proceedings were or just downright wrong and getting me to say multiple times something that I had said in the past which is that presidents get to name their own ambassadors and they also get to remove ambassadors for any reason at any time. But I also added that it's not necessary to drag me through the mud to do that. Something else was going on.
3: Speaking of how you were treated, when I interviewed your then boss, now former boss, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, at the start of 2020, I asked if he owed you an apology. And we went around on that a bit until we got to here.
2: I'll say only this. I have defended Every State Department official. We've built a great team. The team that works here Sir, is doing amazing work around the world.
3: Where have you defended
2: Marie Ivanovic? I've defended every single person on this team. I've done what's right for every single person on this team. Can you point me toward
3: your team. remarks where you have defended Marie Yovanovitch?
2: I've said all I'm going to say today. Thank you,
3: Marie Yovanovitch. I've always wondered: Did Pompeo defend you? Did he ever apologize to you?
4: He never apologized, Uh, and according to Deputy Secretary Sullivan, he did defend me for a number of months until the President's um, insistence that I be removed uh, became, um, you know, so strong that Pompeo felt he had no other choice. But here's the thing, Pompeo, according to Sullivan, knew that I had done nothing wrong, and yet he allowed me to be removed, he allowed my reputation to be dragged through the mud, he abdicated his leadership role. He he went to West Point, he was in the army, and the first thing you do is you defend your troops. That is a basic tenet of leadership. And he failed.
3: You retired from the State Department shortly after that? Yes, yeah. in
4: January of 2020.
3: Marie Ivanovich, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. Her memoir is titled, Lessons from the Edge.
0: And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday@npr.org. At I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Daniel Hensel, Matthew Shurman, Connor Donovan, Sarah Handel, Gabriel Donatov, Ravenna Koenig, Samantha Balaban, Barry Hardiman, Rebecca Hersher, Suzanne Levy, Kat Lonsdorf, and Courtney Dorning. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.